0: Hi again, Gary Zacharias here with The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm back with another look to a book called To Everyone, an Answer, subtitled A Case for the Christian Worldview. Uh, The editors are pretty heavy hitters in Christian apologetics, Frank Beckwith, uh, William Lane Craig, and J.P. Moreland. And uh, let me see what the date of this book is. It came out in 2004, so it's been around for some time, but boy, some excellent chapters here. First section, Faith, Reason, and the Necessity of Apologetics. Second part is God's Existence. Uh, Third part, Christ and Miracles. Fourth part, Philosophical and Cultural Challenges to Christian Faith. Next and last is uh, Religious Challenges to Christian Faith. Great authors, and uh, I like it because it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, right? Just a miscellany, just a collection of good things. I want to look at the chapter this time by Gary Habermas, who's probably the leading expert in the world today on the resurrection of Jesus. So, his chapter is called The Case for Christ's Resurrection. And uh, he says uh, he's going to concentrate basically on just two major topics that he said usually don't get discussed much in great detail, but he said they're really crucial for making the case, uh, historical case, for the resurrection of Jesus. First, he says, "Well, it's a virtually a net unanimous conclusion of contemporary scholars that at least Jesus' followers thought that they had seen the risen Jesus." He said, "Well, can you move from certainty that they believed they had seen Jesus to their really seeing Jesus? In other words, how do you how do you move from their convictions to an actual resurrection?" He said, "That's huge." And then secondly, he said, uh, you have religious and political transformations that are pretty common. You look at all these different things. He said, but so what makes the transformation of Jesus' disciples so unique? So those are the two things that he wants to get into. So he starts off, he he says, um, in contemporary studies, if you look at contemporary studies, he said there are some items that are supported by actual scholarly consensus one that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God was his central message and that he died by crucifixion. He said that people agree with that, no matter where they stand as far as their own views of Christianity. He said that's critical. Scholars will agree with that. And then they'll also agree that the early disciples at least thought that they saw the risen Jesus. So he's going to deal with that. He said, uh, let's go to the Apostle Paul. He said that's the best witness among the New Testament writers. He's always thought of as being the best witness because here he was an opponent, and then he points out that Jesus appeared to him. There isn't Jesus, and well, he got Paul, and then he said uh, beyond his own experiences, he presents plenty of additional evidence for the claim that Jesus appeared. And you look, especially at 1 Corinthians fifteen three to eight, that's an ancient oral tradition. I think it's fascinating. It's a creed that really summarizes the whole Christian gospel what is it? It says that Jesus the Christ died for human sin, was buried, raised from the dead, appeared to individuals and groups. And Paul points out, by the way, when he writes this, that that's not his wording, that he received it and he's passing along to others. So everybody agrees that Paul there is citing uh, tradition. Now the question that comes up, of course, is, well, how early is that creed? And he says scholars today are agreeing that Paul probably got this when he visited Jerusalem just three years after his conversion. You see that in Galatians 1. He visited Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. And they are listed as having seen the risen Jesus. And he said you get pretty strong evidence to support this conclusion coming from Paul's use of a particular verb in Galatians 1.18. Historesi, I think. That's about as close as I can get it. It says the Greek term indicates that Paul visited Peter not just to say hi, not just to catch up, hey, how's the weather been, but for the purpose of investigating a particular subject. And, of course, Paul's topic for being there was to ascertain the the nature of the gospel message. Well, what's the center of the gospel message? The resurrection of Jesus. So critical scholars will concede that this early pre-Pauline tradition You know, this uh, story about the creed and all, that came at a very, very early date. I mean, extremely early. Some people think by the end of 30 AD. Uh, Here's another person who says, a skeptic, Gerd Ludemann. He says, you, you must date it within three years of the crucifixion of Jesus. Wow, that is really early. Most of the critical scholars conclude that Paul got this material within just a few years. Look how far back that pushes it. He he says also that Paul was exceptionally careful to say that the content of the gospel message was the resurrection. Well, he went back. Paul made a second trip to Jerusalem to check out the gospel that he'd been preaching. That's in Galatians 2. He thought, maybe I was doing it wrong. Maybe I'm having the wrong message. And some think even in Acts 15, there may have been a third trip to do the same thing. He wanted to be absolutely positive that he was preaching the gospel message. Now he wanted to make sure when he went to Jerusalem that he was talking to the right people. So in his first trip, he met Peter and James. On the second trip, that's again Galatians 2, he met the same two, that's Peter and James, plus the apostle John. So he's wanting to test that creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Is it true? Is it accurate? And Habermas says, you know, we shouldn't overlook the significance of these meetings. Those four four men that met in that second uh, time that Paul went there, the four of them, that would be Peter and James and John and and, uh, Paul, they're the chief apostles of the early church. Each one had been an eyewitness, had a resurrection appearance. So when Paul received the confirmation that what he was preaching was correct, then we can be pretty sure that Paul's message about the resurrection agreed with their experiences. And he says also, if you look at not only 1 Corinthians 15, but look in other places in the New Testament, there are other creedal texts that provide more spotlights about this witness of the resurrection appearance. They're all over the place. And I've done a talk on that as well about these early creeds. They predate the Gospels. And they seem to say the same thing as the Gospels. They give further uh, evidence to the truth of the resurrection. It says, um, Habermas again here, he's saying there's no doubt that uh, in Acts, he says the author there has been preserving material from really early sources. And he says so far in in this chapter, that in the book here that I'm reviewing, he says that we've been discussing these early apostolic witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But he said... It's rarely questioned by any critic that James, Jesus' brother, was an unbeliever and a skeptic during his ministry, during the ministry of Jesus. That's true. I mean, everybody agrees, yeah, he was a skeptic, yeah, he didn't believe. But James, just a few years later, ends up the pastor of the Jerusalem church, where Paul finds him when he goes for his two visits. So in between that early creed in 1 Corinthians 15, states that James met the risen Jesus and as Habermas says, wow, can you imagine what transpired there? James meets his brother huh, after uh, the death of Jesus. Wow. It says so critical uh, scholars do believe that James was an unbeliever. There are a lot of reasons, multiple independent sources. And uh, James was converted. A lot of critics agree. They, uh, what, what else would change him from being a skeptic to becoming a leader of the Christian church and being willing to die for his faith? All right, then Habermas moves on. He says, well, here's another issue. Jesus' burial tomb was found empty. Okay, so a lot of people say there, there you go, there's proof of the resurrection. But he says, no, it doesn't really prove that. But he said it does add some credibility to the disciples' claim that they saw the risen Jesus because it really complicates any kind of search for some sort of naturalistic hypothesis And whatever happened, something happened to Jesus' body. And he says, you know, there are actually some good reasons to support the idea of an empty tomb. The Gospels agree in that. It said women went there, and they said that was amazing. Female testimony was disallowed in a court. If you're going to make up a story, that's going to get your case dismissed if you have women in it. But that report makes sense if it actually reflected what happened. And Jerusalem, by the way, is the last place on earth for Jesus' followers to proclaim that he'd been risen unless the grave was empty. Otherwise, what do you do? You just say, oh, really? Jesus is back from the dead, huh? Let's go take a look. And you walk out to that hillside and you pull that stone away and then you find Jesus in there, right? So that's an interesting point, I think, is that Jerusalem is where the disciples first preached the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, says the uh, empty tomb accounts are attested by a lot of sources found uh, in almost every gospel. One ancient historian, Paul Meyer, and I've uh, seen him and listened to him in the past, he says many facts from antiquity rest on just one ancient source, while two or three sources in agreement generally render the fact unimpeachable, which is exactly what you get with this story. So he said the early pre-Pauline creed that you see in 1 Corinthians 15 at least implies an empty tomb. So there's another early creed. He says in Acts 13, verses 29 to 31 and 36 to 37, he said that even indicates more clearly that Jesus was buried and was raised and appeared. Uh, one man, uh, J.D.G. Dunn, states, I have to say quite forcefully the probabilities that the tomb was empty. He's a critical scholar. Habermas moves on. He says, there's no question that the disciples' belief that they had actually seen Jesus led to a huge transformation in their lives. I mean, it was such a great transformation. They're willing to die for their faith. Now, a lot of people die for something they're not sure of. But these guys either knew it was real or it was not real, and they were willing to go to their own deaths. very different than something like, uh, I'm thinking about the uh, Muslim terrorists who died in 9-11. They, they hoped that what they were doing would buy them some kind of eternal payoff, but they didn't know. But the disciples knew it was either a con or it was real. If it's a con, why are you going to go die? Especially have all of them have horrific deaths. But they went to those deaths and they were the ones that would know. Okay, so he says uh, there was a radical transformation in their lives, being even willing to die for their faith. So he says, we've listed, this is toward the end of the chapter here, the end of the section. He says, we've listed eight different reasons to show why contemporary scholars, just about without any exception, they have concluded the disciples really did think Jesus appeared to them after they died, uh, after he had died on the cross. So what are these eight real quickly? Again, Paul's eyewitness testimony, that early date when he got the creeds, the checking his own gospel message at least twice with the other apostles, his knowledge of their teaching on the resurrection, uh, the evidence unheard of in ancient documents. So, he says, you get other early creedal witnesses like that in Acts. He said the conversion of James, the empty tomb, and the disciples' transformation. That all of that provides support that the disciples were convinced that they had seen the risen Jesus, no doubt about it. So, he says each of those reasons that he spent this chapter talking about points to the belief that Jesus was seen after his death. So the claim to which all the scholars are agreeing is some kind of visual claim, not a hallucination, but a visual claim. So he says, all right, so now we know the disciples were convicted, were convinced that they saw Jesus, but it, did they really? It was their real appearance. So because of time, I'm going to have to hustle over this a little bit here, but he said, a lot of people have wanted to come up with some kind of natural, uh, naturalistic theory about all this data. You know that maybe it was a hallucination or something like that. That's he said. That's the most popular one that they really wanted to see Jesus. He said, "Well, there are problems with that." So remember the the, the claim or the counterclaim is that no, people don't rise from the dead. So they probably hallucinated. They wanted to see their uh, their friends so much that they thought they saw him. He said, "But." here are the problems with it. And he goes over it fairly quickly. He says, hallucinations are private, but these are groups of people that claim to have seen Jesus. Here's another problem. The disciples' despair indicated they weren't in the mind to see hallucinations. They didn't think they were going to see Jesus again. They were horrified and they were frightened and so depressed. And yet, here comes Jesus. Why would they expect that? He said, maybe the most serious problem is that there are just too many different times and places and personalities involved in the appearances. He says, that's pretty hard to believe that with each of these different kinds of people and circumstances, you're going to get a separate hallucination. He says, also, if it's a hallucination, then Jesus' body is where? It's in the tomb. You could go find it. He says, hallucinations, by the way, here's another point, very rarely transform lives. He says, there's no records of any of the eyewitnesses recanting their faith, especially if you look at Paul and James. They didn't want to see Jesus. That's a big problem, isn't it? They didn't care. They, they were not longing to see him. So he said, these, these are serious questions for this alternate view. All right, well, then I think I'll leave it there. That's uh, pretty much the end of the chapter. This is, again, Gary Habermas, and he's making the case for Christ's resurrection. Uh, Again, I would uh, have you go take a look at his books, Habermas, and he has a lot of material just on his website, GaryHabermas.com, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, Gary Habermas. Wonderful person. I've uh, emailed back and forth with him, and he seems like a very kind uh, person. Uh, So again, the book that this came from is called To Everyone and Answer, and I think you'd get a lot out of it. It's a wonderful book. All right, thanks. We'll do another podcast soon.